You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. If you have a Bible with you, would you like to turn with me to Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 to 38? Let me encourage you in your own time, please do um, read the chapters, the two chapters before that, which have led up to this as well. We're going for that short passage there just for the sake of time, but it will cover that whole section there, which is really helpful uh, as we've made our way through the book of Exodus, but we are in our last bit here. So let me read to you Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 to 38. If you have a church Bible, That is on page 101. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. The cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Matt's going to come and share the word to us now. Thanks, Eric. And good afternoon, everyone. Really good to be with you. Um, Do keep your Bibles open in Exodus, as we're going to be kind of looking at that part of the Exodus story, but we'll also be doing really an overview of the whole of the book. So uh, why don't I pray before we start? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a good God, that you love us deeply, and that as your word is open, you speak to us, no matter who we are, no matter the circumstance which we've arrived here this afternoon. And we ask that none of us would leave here unchanged. Amen. Well, let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. Were you, ever, were you ever afraid of monsters under the bed? Were you ever afraid of monsters under the bed? You see, when the, when the light is switched off at night and you're plunged into darkness, did you ever hide under the covers? Was that you? Did you ever kind of cocoon yourself in the duvet? Because actually, when you were cocooned in the duvet, it just felt like you were safe. It was like a warm and cozy refuge with just you and a community of of cuddly toys where you could kind of bunker yourself down and be safe. Well, that was certainly my experience, and I think last week I really made a breakthrough in improving that. You can ask Jackie. But I imagine for many of us, being afraid of the dark, looking for safety, is probably an experience that marked all of our childhoods at some way, at some point or another. But but as grown-ups, but as grown-ups, we come to realize that actually the monsters under our beds that we imagine that are there are really not the types of things that we should be worried about. For in the darkness or out there, there are far more terrifying things. That even our best efforts to build stronger refuges out of apartments or houses 
or strong CVs or tight friendship groups or even marriage cannot protect us from. One leadership writer, he posed a question recently on um, the platform LinkedIn and he said this, what is the one thing that you're struggling with right now above anything else? And he overwhelmingly got the response back, more than relationship issues, more than financial issues. The problem that people said they were facing was that of mental clutter. That that is a sense of being overwhelmed, a sense of not being able to switch off because your brain is always switched on. It's, it's kind of like it's got a radar for problems that could come your way that need fixing, for future issues that you need to be aware of, of scanning past conversations that you've had with other people, looking for mistakes that you may have said or faux pas that you may have unwittingly made. You see, those monsters of the world, the world that we live in, way, way outside of Eden, a world where each one of us, if we're honest, has actually abandoned our creator God in the way that he's asked us to live, and in our own way vowed that we would live life our own way, the worries of that world that we have been responsible for making, well, that is a world full of fear, full of worry. And we live in a world where those monsters live within our hearts and minds. And our duvets and our cuddly toys will not protect us in the dark. And that's why the book of Exodus is so important. Now, this is going to be the final talk in our Exodus series. We've been trekking through Exodus for a long time overall. And I want to give you an overview of Exodus. I want to show you where we've been. And I, I want to kind of give you a final reminder as we close this book of the Bible, why it is so valuable for us today. Now, Exodus is 40 chapters long. But within the book of Exodus are described three refuges. Three refuges, three locations of safety that point to the ultimate rescue, ultimate protection, the ultimate peace that we can finally have from the monsters of this broken world. I want to show you these three refuges as quickly as I can, and that's going to be the way that we're going to restructure this kind of overview on the book of Exodus. Uh, and then I'm going to finish by giving us a key, something that we can take away that will help us when we face our own fears. So the first point is this, the first refuge, the basket. First refuge, the basket. Now, the book of Exodus, it opens with the Israelite nation being enslaved by the Egyptians. They've been enslaved for hundreds of years by the time uh, verse 1 comes around. And in the early chapters of, of Exodus, the Pharaoh has said that he's afraid of the Israelites. They'll get too big, and he wants to cull the population. So in an act of genocide, he, he calls... He calls for all of the Israelite boys to be thrown into the River Nile and killed. You see, this is a very dark opening to the book of Exodus. I wonder if you remember it, those of you who were, who were here when we started this series. 
But these early chapters, you may not know this, these early chapters are also titled by some as the five women who saved the world. That's also kind of how these early chapters are titled, the five women who saved the world, in the sense of the actions, the courage of these five women at the very first chapters of Exodus actually laid the foundation for the Messiah to come. In the beginning of Exodus, you have two midwives who have been told by Pharaoh that they need to work for him. One's called Shifra, which means splendid, and the other one is called Pua, which means beautiful. And I think if you were in a maternity ward and you had a midwife called Splendid and another one called Beautiful, you would probably feel a little bit calmer, wouldn't you, about what was about to happen to you. But these amazing Israelite women, these amazing Israelite midwives, covertly defy Pharaoh, the great superpower of the time. Look at me at verses um, 1 to 4 of chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. says this, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So this is the kind of origin story of Moses, who is the main character throughout the entire book of Exodus. But you've got Moses' mother, really, is the star of the show in these opening chapters. She is a mother who joins the ranks of courageous women who have hidden their children from slaughter. Something that there will be a number of mothers, even across our world today, who have had to make that horrendous choice. And Moses' mother risks her own life in the process. She perhaps shows even greater courage by placing her child in a basket on the major river of the nation. This simple basket is the first refuge in the book of Exodus. And against all the odds, it bears a child born in the image of the living God on top of the water. Everything around that basket is danger and inevitable death. But within the basket, there is safety, there is refuge. And it's all under the watchful guardianship of his sister. Well, that is, that is the next woman where it lands remarkably in the safe hands of the Egyptian princess, who's woman, woman number five. An Egyptian princess who, against all of the stigma and the pressure of her own family, she chooses to raise this child as her own. Can you imagine the situation where this woman goes against her very father's wishes to have these children destroyed and these people treated as less than dirt on your feet? And yet she chooses to pluck this child who should otherwise be dead out of the water and cares for him as her own. Remarkable courage. And for those of you who know your Bibles, does it not ring some bells here? Is there not like a ding, ding, ding? That this feels a little bit like the story of Noah's Ark that you can read about in Genesis 9. 
which, if you know your story, is a huge boat known as the Ark that became a refuge for Noah and his family from the death of the floodwaters, but carrying these fragile humans to safety. And so here we have, at the very beginning of our book of Exodus, God raises up a leader called Moses who will be tasked to rescue his people from the monster of slavery. Now, the challenge, of course, is you, if you were there at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, to the very beginning of our series, the challenge for us here today in 21st century Manchester was in the light of the example of the bravery and courage of the five women who saved the world, the challenge was this. Where are you? Where are you? I'm talking to you. Where are you subversively doing good in the place that God has placed you? Where are you subversively doing good in the location that God has placed you? You see, it's always going to be easier for you and I to put our heads down and blend in with the wallpaper of the office or the school gate or the university bar or the digital realms that you inhabit. But, but on this side... On this side of the new creation, where things are not good and not well and things are dangerous and harmful and not as God had planned them to be, two things are constant. Number one, God's people will always face persecution. They will always face injustice and they will always face suffering, either directly or indirectly. That will always be a constant, this side of the new creation. The second thing is God's people are called to act They're actually called to do something about it. They're called to risk the status quo, to put themselves on the line, to subversively, if necessary, be a force of resistance against the darkness in this world. All of the women at the very beginning of the book of Exodus bring significant impact through leveraging the very ordinariness of their position the ordinariness of their opportunity, of their resources under their current circumstances. These women didn't turn the world upside down for kind of being entrepreneurs. That is a good thing to do. Or starting up a not-for-profit. That is a great thing to do. These women actually saved the world through leveraging the ordinary opportunities that God had placed around them. So what is the opportunity you have you, you have, literally, right now, in order to showcase the goodness and generosity of God. In the everydayness of this coming week, what opportunity do you have to show that God is wonderful? See, this is a sense of what it means to live for his glory, isn't it? Don't allow your life to shrink shrink to merely getting by. Don't waste your life just waiting for the weekend. Number two, come to the second refuge. Point two, second refuge, the house. This takes us to um, kind of towards the first, uh, kind of end of the first part of the book of Exodus. And Moses Uh, Moses is a grown man now. He's sent by God to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. 
And this drama of this section of the book is that Pharaoh says no. Says he's not going to let God's people go, which leads to the, the very famous ten plagues that are brought about by God. And it's a fascinating piece of scripture. If this was a film, it would be like a montage sequence. You know, all the different kind of plagues happening together at a super fast pace. Well, the ten plagues mirror the ten words or the ten times that God speaks in Genesis chapter 1. It's a description in these ten plagues of the creation being unraveled or undone. It is a picture of decreation. It is making the point that the power that brought the universe into being is now being devastatingly focused like sun's rays through a magnifying glass onto this one stubborn, slave-endorsing nation. It is God saying, I will not put up with this, not with my people. These ten plagues are a scream into the darkness that when God commits to a people, he never lets them go. You see, Pharaoh doesn't budge, though. And so God calls the final tenth plague. I wonder if you remember it when we went through it as a, as a church community. It was, it was a hard one to work through. It's the death of the firstborn of each house. It echoes Pharaoh's actions at the very beginning of, uh, of Genesis when he killed the Israelite children. And this plague, the, the, the final plague, is the most intense because this final plague is liable to fall on both Egyptians or Israelites. But equally, equally, and this is where the generosity comes in, Actually, God gives a way to be saved if you are an Israelite or if you are an Egyptian. The only thing they have to do to be saved is they have to build a refuge. And the instructions for building this second refuge in Exodus were, were quite simple. It's right there in, um, in verses 21 to 22. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some on the blood on the door and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. Again, those of you who know your Bibles will be thinking to yourself, here we go, it's a specific location, it's where families and animals all go in together and the people will be safe. We're talking about an ark here, aren't we? Isn't this a reference again to Noah's ark? In fact, and I love this, in the original Hebrew, the word house in this part of the book of Exodus is the word for ark, spelt backwards. Isn't that cool? That's pretty cool. It's cool to me. It's cool to me. <laughs> but this refuge, this second refuge, this house, has actually, what is, it's, it, it makes a profound difference. Because this house, this refuge, only works because of a substitutionary death of another. You see, God's justice can't be selective. Otherwise, it would be corrupt. You can't have a judge who says, well, I'm going to send you to prison, but because you're part of my family, you can go free. That just wouldn't be right, would it? 
we want the benefits of God's justice when we're the victim, but we really don't want God's justice when we're condemned. After all, if, if the reality of your life, the things that you've said or done or did, publicly or in secret, or just played up on this massive screen, wouldn't you just want the whole earth to open up and swallow you whole? None of us can stand the true justice of God, can we? So it was a temporary solution, an unblemished animal was sacrificed, representing for the Israelites or the Egyptians a faith by which the people could be rescued by God. This animal would die in their place because it was a representation that one day, one day God would make a permanent solution to the injustice of his people's sin. And one of the many challenges of this part of Exodus is the question, if you were there, if you were there way back in this part of Exodus, when you were given the instructions for this refuge, would you actually have made your house a refuge? Would you have done that? Would you have gone to the expense or the inconvenience? Would you, would you have changed your diary to do all of the things that God requested to make your home a refuge? Would you, in deepest love and distress for your Israelite neighbor who you see going about their normal day business, having ignored God's instructions to make a refuge themselves, would you have gone to that neighbor and said, hey, I'm willing to have an awkward conversation with you because I love you and you are in great danger unless you actually do what God tells you? Would you have had that conversation? Would you have that awkwardness if it was someone you loved and you were worried for them? Can you see where I'm going with that application for us as a church community? If God has been clear about what trusting him looks like and, and the end result of not trusting him is, is terrifying consequences of facing your own judgment for your own injustice. But God's told us how, how we can find a refuge from the consequences of our own sin. Should we keep that private or should we share that with others? That was one of the big challenges from this part of Exodus. If you were there back then, let's turn up the volume on this one. Would you have knocked on the door of your Egyptian neighbor if you were an Israelite and said, hey, something big is about to happen, but there is a way to be safe. If you make a refuge or if you come into my home, would you have done that if, if you were there? Would you have knocked on the door of your slave master and said, hey, there's a, there's a great judgment coming, but, but you can come to the refuge with me? Would you have done that? Or is your faith a private matter? And what happens out there is their problem. Refuges against coming danger are never just private, are they? If you were just to walk a few meters down the road outside of this church towards Piccadilly Station, you wouldn't know it, but 
under that road is actually one of the largest air raid shelters in this city. It can hold about uh, 1,275 people and keep them safe from bombs. It's public. It's not private. That's why we as a church exist, to be a refuge not merely for ourselves, but we have space here for your friends, for your neighbours, for your work colleagues that do not yet know Christ and have no idea that one day the Lord Jesus is coming back and bringing with him the justice and judgment that we both long for and yet makes us tremble. Come with me to our third point, the third refuge, the tabernacle. We're tracking through this book fast, aren't we? The majority of the back end of the book of Exodus is focused on the third refuge, which is the tabernacle. And who could forget when Chris, in this very room, made a kind of life-size tabernacle for us all to experience how big it was and how awesome it was. It is the ultimate refuge so far in the book of Exodus. And it is far better than all of the previous refuges. It's better than the Ark of Noah. It's better than the basket of Moses. It's better than the house. This one, this refuge, was like a second Garden of Eden. It was designed to be like that. And it was a place where God would be present with his people. That's what made it so special, where God's presence would dwell. And so in verses 35 to 40, sorry, in chapters 35 to 40, final chapters of the book, they go into immense detail behind the construction of the tabernacle. But here's a teaching point for us, yeah? I have never understood it when Christians dismiss creative excellence. You see, the writer of Exodus could have just said, oh, God told them to build a nice big tent. He doesn't. Chapter upon chapter is God giving the very precise instructions of exactly how he wants this final refuge to be made in this book. God says how he wants it to be made, what he wants it to be made from. He even says who he wants to be the the, the craftsman working on it. He he doesn't just pull a plumber or an electrician from Gumtree. He directly says... In verses um, 30 to 35 of chapter 35, he wants a fellow called Bezalel and a fellow called Ahaliab because he wants their specific wisdom, their skill, their excellence that he has given them to be used for the construction of this tabernacle in order for it to be beautiful. You see, if you're a creative or consider yourself a creative in this room, then note the application. In fact, if you have skills of any sort, which I'm sure all of you do, note this application. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that the church, the church, that is this community of people, that actually we are the living stones of the new temple. That is the new tabernacle. That is the refuge that enjoys the protection of God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. 
So where your skills adorn the church, whatever that might be, or wherever your skills in your general life or profession points to Jesus, then that's a big deal. And you should cherish that. You see, your diligence, your practice, your rehearsal, your attention to detail, your attention to typeface or font size or measurement or color palette or Excel precision or tuning or rehearsal all matters. It all really matters. The skills are given to you by God for his glory. How is it for his glory? Because the tabernacle was like a walking signpost pointing the Israelites and all of the other nations around them, encouraging them to see how beautiful God is so that they could put their trust in him and come to him as a refuge. Think about it like this. The tabernacle in Exodus was the most expensive, most beautiful, most wonderful billboard pointing to a come here and find a refuge in the desert advertisement that the world had ever seen. Until perhaps, you know, the Burj Khalifa Hotel. And that doesn't move. You see, this was a remarkable, remarkable signpost pointing to God in all of his glory. The believer, the Christian believer, pursues excellence with their God-given skills. That's what we do. We pursue excellence. We pursue beauty in design. We pursue soul-moving wonder in composition, not to point at ourselves, but to provoke the world to ask the question, who is the creator of you who you honor through the things that you make? And your skills, be you an electrician or a medic or an academic or a teacher or a stay-at-home parent, whatever you might be called to do, your skills are an invitation to all who observe and watch you. It's an invitation to all of those who observe and watch you to come and know the God that you serve. So here Exodus ends, the collective effort of all of the people at the very end of chapter 40. They've created the tabernacle, and God dwells with his people. He has empowered them to make a refuge that will protect them. Look with me at verse 34 of the last chapter of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's like the high point. It's like the climax. This is what it's all been about. The great ultimate refuge that all of Exodus has been building to has been made. But there is one ominous note. Right at the very end of verse 35. It's right there at the very end in your Bibles, we're told that Moses could not enter the refuge because the glory of God was there. Now, the reason that this is a slightly niggling, it's just a niggle, it's just a niggle, perhaps, you think of it. Why couldn't Moses go in? Because 
You're thinking to yourself, if you've been through us for the whole of the Exodus journey, in passages like Exodus 24, verses 15 to 18, Moses has met with God on the mountain in the glory cloud, with the lightning, with the very presence of God. That seemed to be no problem. And yet now at the very end of the book, he can't go into the tent. What went wrong? We're told that he couldn't go in because God's glorious presence was there. And yet throughout the book of Exodus, throughout the book of Exodus, Moses has been the only one who could go to be close to God because his presence was there. So what has changed? At the very end of the book, what has changed? At the very climax, when everything should be ice cream and cakes. Isn't that a good way to finish a book of the Bible with ice cream and cakes? There seems to be a niggle of sadness. And the reason it's there goes back to chapter 32, verses 31 to 34 of Exodus. Where Moses... If you remember Ralph's sermon on the, um, on the moment the people abandoned God and they made this golden calf idol made of gold. If you remember, Moses says when God is about to punish the people and destroy them and have nothing more to do with them because of their, their sin, because of their rebellion, Moses goes, look God, Punish me, but save the people. Let the justice fall on me. Only be the refuge to the people that you said you would be. And so at the end of this amazing book, the people are safe and they're worshipping God and they're having the time of their life with the refuge of God symbolically right in the middle of the Israelite camp but they're only able to do that because Moses said, I'll take their place. I'll take their place. Let me put it like this. Back in 1912, one of the most famous maritime disasters uh, in the UK happened. It was the sinking of the Titanic. And in the final minutes, in the final minutes where that large ocean liner was sinking fast into the ice-cold waters of the ocean, there was one place left on the very last lifeboat. One place. One place on the very last lifeboat. And there was a lady. There was a lady who was in the queue, and it was her place. Her name was Edith Evans, and she was about to step on board the lifeboat from the deck of the Titanic uh, when she noticed her friend was still on the ship, uh, a friend that she dearly loved, a lady called Caroline Lamson-Brown. Caroline Lamson-Brown. And so she said, no, no, no. Caroline, you take my place. You, you take my place. And Caroline accepted that invitation and she became the last person to step off the deck of the Titanic onto a lifeboat according to numerous accounts. Whereas Evans perished in the water with around about 1,500 other passengers aboard and her body was never recovered. 
And Caroline Brown said at a memorial service for Evans, some months later, she said this, it was a heroic sacrifice, and as long as life lasts, I shall hold her memory dear as my preserver, who preferred to die so that I might live. Exodus is designed to point us to Jesus. For like Moses and like Evans, Jesus said of us, let them be safe. Let them be safe in the refuge. Let them take my place. And so it's Jesus who took the punishment for my sin so that the perfect God of justice could always be close to me and you, not in a tent, but gifting me the Holy Spirit, so that the presence of God could dwell with me always. It was Jesus who is our true friend, whose love would have pulled me into the refuge of his house, activated by his blood, even though I treat him like nothing. And it's Jesus who had the courage, like Moses' mother, to save me and you, though I, like a baby in a basket, could do nothing to contribute to my own safety. The application to you, if you're not yet a believer, is put your trust in Jesus, because it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus has paid it all. But for those of you who are believers, and if you're like me, but you are a warrior, you are an excessive planner, you are an obsessive list maker, well then if you're like me, then there's part of you that still believes that you are outside of the refuge. You see... One of the things that we learn in the book of Exodus is that slaves have to worry about everything because they have no one to worry on their behalf. But we do because we're not slaves. And so if you're like me and you struggle with that mental clutter, those monsters that come in the night and steal your sleep and your peace, one thing for you to remember the God who gave up his place in the refuge of heaven for you will not abandon you now. Will not abandon you now. He will not let you face your fears alone. For you are not called to live this life on your own, to be your own saviour. The book of Exodus calls us to draw close to him, our loving God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we do not deserve it, you call us to be close to you. You call us to walk with you. Though we often think of ourselves as alone, and abandoned, we are reminded that in the Lord Jesus who gave up his place in heaven so that we would never be without refuge again, we have the very creator of the universe walking with us as we face our challenges, 
our fears, our monsters every day. Amen.